Have you ever uh, been to uh, grandma's house? Maybe not like your grandma, but like a grandma's house. And if you are a, a grandma, please don't be offended if this next description is, well, offensive. But like, why is it so hot in there? 85 to 89 degrees seems to be the optimum temperature. And, you know, there's the soft, sun-bleached carpet that has been collecting dust and skin cells since Nixon was in office. The furniture is floral, and it's more comfortable than anything that has been upholstered in the last century. And it's five o'clock somewhere. And so the blinds are drawn, and the low-light incandescent bulbs paint a soft glow on the plaid wallpaper. There's the 350-pound uh, television round screen encased in oak, and it's got state-of-the-art color, but it's tuned to an old western in black and white. You know, you've just finished up dinner, and it's a dinner so filling, you have to loosen the belt. You gotta pop the button. It's warm, and it's stuffy. And as you're swallowed up by the couch that's twice as old as you, good luck keeping your eyes open. All the conditions are set, even conspiring to put you to sleep. It's like everything is working against you. You can't help but close your eyes. This morning, we're going to meet a young man from an ancient city in western Turkey where the night has come and the land is dark. The upper room where he finds himself is filled to the brim with servants and slaves and people from all social standing. The flickering lamps, they paint the walls with a soothing orange glow, and the fumes from their burning rise to the roof and drift their way out the open windows. It's warm and it's stuffy. And as a man speaks on and on, late into the night, way past his bedtime, no chance is he keeping his eyes open open. All the conditions are set, even conspiring to put him to sleep. It's like everything is working against him. He can't help but close his eyes. The author of the book of Acts, traditionally known as Dr. Luke, a physician and also a traveling companion of Paul, he writes in Acts chapter 20, and if you have your Bibles, why don't you go flip there with me. Um, it's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in the New Testament. It's actually the continuation of the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along with a, a Bible app or on the screen as well. Acts 20 verse 7. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. 
So it's Sunday and all the local Jesus followers are gathered in Troas, a city, an ancient seaport in Western Turkey, as Luke indicates in the verses just before. It's Sunday and they're gathered here in Troas to share the Lord's Supper. Sure, you know, the the bread and the wine to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, but it was also more than that. It was a real meal, a real meal, a dinner, a feast, a spread, a supper, a potluck, because, well, everyone contributed. It was a real meal, pretty much the only real meal that slaves, poor slaves, would receive all week. It was a real meal where Christians sat down and ate together in love and in friendship, sharing with one another. It was simple. But it was special. The baby back ribs that Eliezer brought were falling off the bone. The, uh, the kebabs that Shemaiah brought were jamming. And Thaddeus needs a little help in the kitchen, but his stew was at least edible. And during or after the meal, they'd celebrate the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or the communion, whatever you want to call it. They would celebrate it together. They would remember and reflect on who they were and why they were there because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's something that we still see today, something that I I think we would benefit from seeing a lot more of. I mean, this church, Journey the Church, 12 years ago and all the years since, was built on the backs of barbecues. But there's something beautiful. There's something beautiful that brings people together with food. There's a communing that happens, a love, a friendship. Like what better way to share Jesus than to share food? I mean, when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning just to start that smoker, and then you check it every hour on the hour all throughout the day and into the night just to invite me over. That, my friend, is the Lord's work. And it doesn't just have to be like Kobe beef or anything. I'm down with the vegan stuff too. But seriously, you know, if we are serious about reaching our friends and families and neighbors and coworkers with Jesus, why don't we start like barbecuing? Maybe we should start barbecuing or, or if that's not your thing, maybe like baking or sauteing or roasting or deep frying, whatever. It's what the early church did. And if your spiritual gift is grill master or iron chef, like do it all for the glory of God. You see, you know, this entire scene is set in the context of worship. And when we often think of worship, we think of some trendy songs and a service in which someone gets up here and speaks about the Bible. But worship is life and every aspect involved in it. And here, this worship gathering in Troas, it involves some good eats. Verse 7 continues. Paul, who was once named Saul, a brilliant Pharisee, uh, a leader of a a Jewish uh, group of individuals who were, were intellectual and had great power and authority, he was once named Saul. 
he was a persecutor of Christians. But you got to kind of take it from his page and from his perspective, from his vantage point. He sees this new group branching off of Judaism. They're calling themselves followers of the way, Christians or the church. They're claiming that the Messiah, Jesus, has come. He died on a cross and rose from the grave, apparently. But Paul, or Saul at the time, felt that it was his duty to snuff out this heretical sect that was sprouting up. He was actually on a missions trip to go to Damascus to bring Christians back to Jerusalem to put them to death, to stone them like he had been doing currently in Jerusalem. Well, on his way to Damascus, he's blinded by the risen Lord Jesus. And there's this vision, but it's more than a vision. It's like reality, this bright light. It blinds him for three days. And it speaks, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He experiences an incredible transformation at this like rock bottom moment in his life. He experiences an incredible transformation, a new trajectory in life. He goes from being a killer of Christians to a killer Christian. And he becomes, wow, that was, okay. And that was great. Okay. And uh, he, he changes his name from Saul to Paul. And it says this, Paul in verse 7. Paul was preaching to them, the believers in Troas, delivering the good news, discussing the scriptures, talking about Jesus. And since he was leaving the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Whew. I mean, when it comes to Jesus, there is a lot to say. And the good news of Jesus is fresh to these folks. Remember, their culture has not inherited a past, a history of growing up in the church. It's not like, oh yeah, I, I grew up Methodist or Catholic or Lutheran or Baptist or Presbyterian or, or whatever. No, no, no. They grew up pagan in a society that was drenched in paganism. Sure, you know, you had some Jews sprinkled in, but the society was rooted in a culture of paganism. So with Jesus and this relatively new church in a society of paganism, maybe, maybe polytheism, many gods, or maybe it was monotheism with one god, but they, they didn't know the one true God. There's a lot to say about this Jesus then. And oh, his audience, why is he speaking so late into the night? Well, first of all, there's a lot to say, but secondly, it's made up of servants and slaves and workers. And so their only free time was at night because in the morning they're back to the fields or back to the shops or back to the construction sites. Luke writes this in verse 8. The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. It's like the mood is set. The flickering lamps, they glow and cast soft orange in the darkness. There's the warmth of a church family, the scent of a feast, wisps of a cool breeze from the window, and the voice of Paul continuing on and on. It says this in verse 9, as Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill became very drowsy. 
naturally, right? It's late, his eyes are heavy, his head begins to droop and nod. Cinderella is turning into a pumpkin. And I bet like most of you guys would have been out like three hours earlier. But don't forget, Luke makes a comment about the many lighted lamps in the upper room, and it produces a lack of oxygen. Add to that a late night and Paul continuing on and on. All the conditions are set, even conspiring to put him to sleep. It's like everything is working against him. He can't help but close his eyes. He's a young man after all. Naonius in Greek refers to a boy of ages 8 to 14 years old, and his name is Eutychus, which is a common slave name. He probably put in a, a full day's work already out in the field. No wonder he's very drowsy. Finally, it says, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death below. Whoa. Three stories. That's like what, uh, 32.48 feet at least? That's like add, uh, I actually measured it earlier. It's like adding 10 more feet to this ceiling. I mean, that's pretty high. That's going to leave a mark, right? And Dr. Luke, our author here, pronounces him dead. It says he dropped three stories to his death below. His uh, name, Eutychus, it literally means lucky. We're fortunate. But unfortunately, he's dead. Not quite happily ever after, but the moral of the story is this. You actually are a better door than a window. And not every window is a window of opportunity. So let's invite the band back up and we will close in prayer. No, 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 no. This is the Miracle Sermon Series. This is the Miracle Sermon series. This is not how it ends. This is the series that features the God who says in Jeremiah 32, 27, I am the Lord, the God of all the peoples of the world. Is anything too hard for me? So Eutychus conks out, falls out of a window, three stories high, plummets to his death below. And Paul, it says, went down, bent over him, and took him into his arms. What what is he doing? Like checking his pulse, CPR? I, I don't know. It just says he bent over him and took him into his arms. It's kind of like Elijah in the Old Testament and Elisha. It's sort of like Jesus in the New Testament. Don't worry, he said, he's alive. Then they all went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper, and ate together. Paul continued talking to them until dawn, and then he left. Meanwhile, the young man was taken home alive, but not only that, alive and well, and everyone was greatly relieved. I think it's hilarious. It's just like Paul is here like, nah, you know, he's fine. Matt, put some, you know, rub some dirt on it. He's good. And then he jets back upstairs to keep on keeping on. But like... It's three stories high, 32.48 feet at least. It seems to be a definite instance of Paul raising someone from the dead, raising a 
dead person back to life, the miraculous power of God working through his life. But Paul's attitude is comical. Like, yeah, it was sort of an inconvenience to have to interrupt my sermon to raise this guy back to life. Physically, this is miraculous. 32.48 feet is going to do some serious, irreversible damage to bones and organs and tissue. Maybe you're like, well, maybe like a tree broke his fall or a bush. Maybe, maybe landed in the sand or something. But the text does not tell us that. And Luke's a doctor who pronounces him dead. This is miraculous somehow. But to Paul, it's like no big deal. Yeah, God does miracles. And maybe today we, we've fallen asleep to that reality. Like, yeah, God still does miracles. The same God of miracles is still working miracles today. And I don't just mean like parking spots at the mall. No, I mean real life heart stop. Now it starts miracles that just don't make sense apart from God. So, yeah, on one level, we've got this story of God's miraculous work through Paul, raising Eutychus back to life. But I think this story also has a deeper figurative interpretation that we can understand as well. You know, like for life and faith and following Jesus. Think of this story in a different way. Think of it this way. Someone drifts off to sleep. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in Thessalonians, and Psalms, and Proverbs, and Job, and Daniel, sleep is imaged as being unwatchful, or unaware, or slumbering, even being dead. Like, think of Jesus in the garden before his arrest. He pleaded with his disciples, stay awake. Stay awake. Don't drift off to sleep. Because to be awake is to be in a position of spiritual readiness and preparation. But in this story, someone drifts off to sleep. Then they experience some type of fall out of the realm of lamps, out of the light, as it were. Someone drifts off to sleep, they experience some type of fall, and everyone immediately expects the worst. Grief, loss, death and dying, finality, the end. But in this story, someone drifts off to sleep, then they experience some type of fall, and everyone immediately expects the worst. But as it turns out, it's not over. There's again the opportunity to come alive. Maybe the figurative interpretation of this story is like the experience of like hitting rock bottom. Or backsliding, or falling, crashing and burning when it comes to life or faith or both. You ever, you ever been there before? Rock bottom. Maybe it's right where you're at this morning. There, there was always the pressure of having to grow up, 
to become someone. It was already planned out long before he was born. His father was a a figure of, of great esteem and power. At times, he could be seen as being impersonal and even removed, but, but he was always there to protect and to defend. By all accounts, he was, he was a great dad. That is, until he died, tragically, in uh, an accident, a slip and fall from heights put an end to his fatherhood. Everything changed for the son with the death of his father. The power struggle unraveled the close connections and bond within the family. He was himself even blamed for his father's death, at least in part. And so, dripping in disgrace, he fled, putting miles between himself and those he once called family. He turned his back on them because they turned their backs on him. He agonized in in the shame and in the guilt and in the pain of it all. He was numb. He fell asleep, in a sense, to feel what it means to be alive. He was himself experiencing a fall, seeing the ground rush up to hit what everyone calls rock bottom. And there at his rock bottom, he found himself in the desert face down in the dirt. Having given up hope and aspiration, he he readied himself to die. Maybe maybe he already was dead. But it wasn't until Timon and Pumbaa went down and bent over him that Simba came back to life. He changed his diet. He dove deeply into community. And he adopted a new mindset in life, Hakuna Matata. And he later discovered and lived for a greater purpose. Sometimes rock bottom is just the beginning of something new. To discover and live for a greater purpose. And like with Eutychus, there's a slumber. There's a fall, and it's supposed to be the end. But a spectacular intervention, maybe miraculous intervention, brings him back into the community, perhaps to discover and live for a greater purpose. I'm saying that maybe maybe rock bottom isn't the end, but maybe it's just merely the beginning. And I I know that this room is full of people who've had the courage and the tenacity and the bravery to say, you know what, I'm at rock bottom, and here's where we start. Day one begins. Maybe again. And I I can't stand cliches, but maybe, maybe this one is worth it. Sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so that you can discover he is the rock at the bottom. Hmm. Now I turn on the TV and I, I drive around town. I go on social media. I, I listen to the radio. I read the paper. I listen to music. I see billboards and 
I see ads, I see commercials and all their empty promises. I go to the store, I go online, I read books. And when I, when I step back, it's like I, I'm really beginning to see. All the conditions are set. Everything is conspiring to put you to sleep. It's like everything is working against you. Like you can't help but close your eyes. And this is not something new. This is not some new phenomenon, the distraction and the apathy or the disillusionment or the confusion. No, no, no. It's always, it's always been with us. It's always been against us. The lullabies of sin and a godless society are rocking us to sleep back and forth back and forth. And I don't know if he said it then with Eutychus dead on the ground, but I sure think that Paul is saying now to us here today, wake up, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And he doesn't just say that. He continues, wake up, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Like living at all costs for real faith and real relationships. Loving the world one person at a time. Don't be drunk with wine or IPAs or Kentucky style bourbon or white claws or drugs or alcohol or pornography or pride, or gossip, or envy, or social media, whatever, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So come alive. Come alive. Come alive. You are on the couch. Come alive. You in the shame and in the brokenness come alive. You in the bitterness of unforgiveness come alive. You in the insecurity <laughs> come alive. You in the addiction to social media and lack of self-worth, come alive. You in the empty patterns of greed and amassing more and more from Amazon.com or Target curbside pickup, come alive. I won't name any names. Come alive. Pray for me. Pray for me too. To come alive.
You in the depths of despair. We're with you. We're with you in your depths of despair, so come alive. You in the fits of rage, chill out and come alive. You in the uneasiness of telling others about Jesus. That can be hard, right? So let's have a barbecue and come alive. Because the same God of miracles is still doing miracles today. And I wonder what our lives and our world would look like if we truly believed that. That as we walk outside the door and as we go into the parking lot, that the magic, when it wears off, that it would still remain in our hearts to come alive. When the trouble meets us right outside or at our door or at work or wherever it may be or at school, would we have this resolve, this tenacity to come alive? Because the God of miracles is working with us, in us, around us, through us, and that is our hope. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that someone who would fall from 32.48 feet or even higher would be able to live, and it's only because of God. All that we are is only because of God. So let's stop kidding ourselves, right? The God of miracles is still working miracles today. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the God who saves, that you are 100% human, 100% God, that you have come to show us how to live, how to move, and how to have our being. And Lord, you are the great miracle worker and you're still doing it today. You're not done yet. And so Lord, I pray that you would do your work in us today that where there is healing that that is necessary, God, that you would provide that healing in your way and in your time. I pray that when people go in the back of the room over this next song, over this next time, even after service is over, that they would open up to those in the prayer team and that they would receive healing and comfort and peace and hope. Lord, I pray that we would have a, a new light in our lives, that we wouldn't be asleep at the wheel, but Lord, that we would be awake and aware and spiritually ready to face all that is before us. And I know that starts maybe for someone here today, just inviting you in, saying, Jesus, I have blown it. I'm at rock bottom and I need you more than anything. And I realize it now. So would you come into my life? Would you become my king? I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, for my shame, for my guilt, all those things we talked about that I need to come alive from. And you rose from the grave, miraculous. And you're still doing miracles today. I wanna follow you. I wanna seek you. And so God, I pray that if someone wants to pray that prayer, if they already have, that they would, they would follow the next steps of discipleship, that they would talk to people out front at the information table, that they would just open up. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would break down the walls in our society that is so isolating and so uh, exclusive. 
that we would build true community in this place, whether it's barbecues, whether it's just out on the patio, having a cup of coffee, whatever it may be, Lord, that we would be a real people as we gather today at the beach to see people's lives changed and dedicated to baptism. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be changed to be in real community because that's how you created us, God. And you are worthy. You are worthy, God. We love you with all our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.